another episode of Game of Life with Dan and Harmon. We're joined by the founder, one of the founding fathers of The Chaser, Lord Charles Firth. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the show. <laughs> Hello. Is, yeah. that, is that from Wikipedia? Is it, is it... <laughs> Probably. I, I, I just threw the Lord in there for something fun. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, wow. I, I deserve it. So you're behind the Chase Report, which is a daily podcast. And I just have to tell you mm. right off the top that I wake up and get ready for work while listening to you and Dom cover all the politics and news happenings in the world. That's how I catch up on mm. my news is listening to you and Dom. Does that does that disturb you in any way that some Australians that are extreme. out there catching up on their news? Yeah. Through you and Dom, yeah, the, the, it should come with a warning label to not do that. Like, <laughs> if you want to actually get any sense of what's actually going on in the world, definitely don't do that. No, I, yeah, because also you must be a little bit behind on the news because it's always a couple of days after it happened, yes. isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> but but I'll tell you what though, this year I would say there's been a few stories where we we have been ahead of the curve. Like when that coup got launched in Russia by Prigozhin, we we actually predicted what would happen about three days before it happened. Same with the submersible. Remember when it was all yes. stuck down the bottom? No one else was was dared to make jokes about it before they knew whether the crew had died or not. But we did. And and we did it like four days beforehand. That was like our most successful episode of this year, most downloaded episode of this year. So, I mean, you know. yeah, good for you guys, but bad for them. Bad for them, bad for them. Yeah, and like, and also a lot of the climate collapse. We've been ahead of the curve on that. You yeah. know, like we we laugh at it months before some of the things happen. Like the wet ball temperature. I don't know whether you remember. We're talking about the wet ball temperature uh, earlier in the year, which is the temperature at which the and temperature and humidity at which humans can't get rid of heat. So if you have high humidity and it's about 34 or 35 degrees, you will die. Right. Um, and, and that just in the last few days has become a thing because there's lots of places in Indonesia and Greece and stuff where, where those, um, high humidity patterns are starting to happen. And I think in America as well. And, uh, you know, we're, we're ahead of the curve on that dying thing. That's going to kill everyone. Well, congratulations. It's good. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, you really wake up happy when you listen to the yeah. taste report podcast. So what's it like for you? Like, do you, do you, does it, make you like do you hate listen to it or do you actually enjoy it or what's going I enjoy, on i enjoy it well it's my little uh tradition each morning because i wake up fairly early in the morning mm. and get dressed and get ready for work and i listen to you and you and dom and that's how i catch up on my news because i feel i've become so disenfranchised mm. with the news and politics yeah. so let's just listen yes to exactly cover everything i need to know yeah <laughs> And they're probably probably yeah because otherwise you got to properly yeah yeah because otherwise you got to listen to the lamestream media yeah journalists <laughs> reporters who actually know things yeah which you know is no way to you don't want to listen to that no in the morning you you don't want facts it's no fun yeah, exactly yeah. you yeah. want opinion, <laughs> misinformed opinions. And bad jokes about people who are about to die in some ways. Yeah. <laughs> Want to listen to news writers if it's funny? Yeah. Harmon's. Yeah, funny. exactly. Yeah. It... Harmon, have you? Do you listen to it? You better listen to it too. I well, I'm gonna start. So here's why uh, Dan wanted you as a guest. There's one more reason he wanted you as because I absolutely have no idea about Australian politics at all. So he said, well, if you want to oh, get okay. to it, we might as well talk to someone who's funny. So I thought, sure. Yes, okay. talk to the expert. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, which is why I brought David Spears with me here today, um, who will be able to give you a really boring appraisal of 
Australian politics. Please. So what do you want to know? Like, like ask me anything. Here's your platform. And I'll, uh, I'll pretend I, I know the answer. Okay, sure. So I am blank slate, but Australian politics or any politics, right? Hmm. So if now, well, officially I am Australian on paper. Um, All right. So you, you got the citizenship the thing. Yeah, I'm in the club now. Yeah, Fucking yeah right. Wow. Okay. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. That means that means we can find you uh, whenever you don't vote. So uh, it's, it's a revenue first, thing. I got I got my citizenship last year, and uh, I got I didn't I was ignorant enough not to go vote, and I did actually end up getting a fine for that. I had to pay a fine, ninety two dollars. Welcome to Australia. Here's the fine. Here's the fine. Oh yeah, right. <laughs> so. <laughs> So what's what's going on in the world? Of... Sorry, say that again. What's going on in the world? What? What's going on in the world of politics in Australia now? How are we going? How are we? Yes. How are we doing? Yes. Well, I think it's about three out of ten, isn't it? I mean, it's it's not as bad as America. You you, you like that's the whole thing is we can just be slightly. I think that's how Australia have approached. Well, actually, the last couple of hundred years uh, of administration uh, is, and and in actual fact, Donald Horn came up with this theory back in the nineteen fifties, right? Which is, and he wrote this very famous book called The Lucky Country, and his thesis, which holds true to this day, is that Australia is a lucky country. It's blessed with all these sort of stuff in the ground that we can sell to the Chinese and keep our economy afloat. Right. And so our leaders can be incredibly mediocre and bumble through and they can be corrupt and they can just be terrible people, like just terribly mediocre people. And yet it doesn't matter because we just bumble on through because we're so lucky. So a lot of people think that the lucky country is about, oh, we're such a lucky country. We've got such great leaders and great politics and everything like that. No, it's actually the opposite. And I think... That holds true. Like, I think the Labor government, the new Anthony Albanese Labor government, sort of looked at the last government and went, well, like, that was a truly terrible government. That was, that was, it was corrupt. Um, you know, the prime minister was appointing himself. It was sort of almost like some sort of Central Asian cacistocracy type, you know, outfit. And they just went, okay, well, if we can just be like 1% better than that, then that'll be good enough. Like we will have outflanked the the uh, Liberal Party and the coalition. And so that's what they've done. They've just got in. They still, you know, it will do half as many gas mines as as the last lot. So, you know, instead of opening, I think they, have they opened 116 or something like that? Which is like, and their whole claim is, well, that's only half um, <laughs> the number that, that we were going to open or something like that. And, and same with the coal mines. Like last week they opened a, a thermal coal mine, which goes, the license goes till 2078, Oof. right? 20 fucking 78 when we're supposed to be keeping it in the ground. Well, <laughs> there you go. Like, um, but better than the last lot who was sort of opening coal mine a week. So there you go. So I think that's where we're at, which is, just slightly, and also, I think every time you change government, it becomes slightly less corrupt for the first couple of years because no one in power knows where the grifts are for the first couple of years. Like, you don't know where the change is being. You know, you just sort of, you know, when you go to a new supermarket or something like that, yeah. you don't know, you don't shoplift on the first visit because yes. you don't know where the camera angles are and stuff like that. Yeah, I think so that I think that's what happens, yeah. So, <laughs> um, yeah, so that's the state of Australian politics. And there's no hope. Like, you might as well just give up now and um, you know, well, stop let me voting. Ask... Well, you've already done that. <laughs> let me ask you this. If you, if you were the Prime Minister, what would you have done differently? Nothing. No, no, no. I'm, I'm not complaining about it. Like, I'm saying we're really lucky. We don't need to have good leaders. Didn't you listen to anything I just said? We've got all this fucking shit in the ground that we can just dig up and sell to China. Don't change a thing. This is great. 
Have you been to the beaches? Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. And also, we've got this grift on at the moment, which also makes a bit of money, which is what we do is we sign people up to be citizens, right? Yeah. And then we vote. Yeah. And we make money out of them. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So it's really, it's really good. It's yeah. very lucrative. It is. I'm going to say, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's our main source of income. Good, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Have you ever gone to vote? <laughs> no, I, I've always voted. Well, because I, I actually like sausages. So, um, you know, there's that. And also, I, my, unfortunately, my extended family are all died in the wool Labor supporters. Um, my, uh, my sister had her 50th. She used to be a Labor Party politician, actually. So I was brought up you know, handing out from the age of five. Like I was voting well before it was legal to vote <laughs> in this country. And um, and so, yeah, we, we would hand out for the RLP all day at the age of five or six or whatever. But, um, but my sister's 50th was last night. And so there was just every Labor politician in Australia seemed to be there. And his, his husband, my sister's husband, my brother-in-law, uh, made this lovely speech about my sister. And he said, uh, he started out by saying, you know, Verity is, is a dyed-in-the-wool Labor supporter, you know, um, you know, you know, when it's, um, you know, oh, fuck, I can't remember the line. He's a dyed-in-the-wool Labor supporter um, when it's, you know, it, even when they're down on their luck and it's completely ill-advised, She's there for Labor. I can't remember the line. He had a really funny way of saying it. But I think that's true. I think when you're brought up in the Labor Party, you're taught to just blindly follow, no matter how mediocre the leaders are. Yeah. So I think that's why I, I would do, even though like every rational part of my being goes, this is terrible. Everything's terrible. <laughs> but you sort of, it's like, I don't know, like, do you follow AFL or something like that? Do you follow some sort of shit ass? Do you feel follow Collingwood or something? Me? And no. you just no. Yeah. No. <laughs> That's no. the insult, isn't what? it? <laughs> what what do you what team do you follow in sport? Uh well, I'm a big uh, football fan, soccer, uh, as uh, as the Australians or me Australian would say. Yeah. Uh, I'm a well, big football fan. But so... you can't be a Socceroos fan, surely. Can oh well, I mean no, what, well, what you're going to say you support? Well, that's like supporting the Labor Party. Like, yes. <laughs> no. I mean, well, yeah. <laughs> terribly all... mediocre. Definitely never going to win. Yes, occasionally get through to the quarterfinals, and you everyone's sort of surprised. <laughs> so, who do you know who do you go for proper in proper football? Not like soccer um, football. Well, my favorite club would be Manchester City. I think they oh, yeah. well they, they won this year, didn't they? Or was they that did. West Ham? Yes, they did. Yes. Um, oh, they did. Yeah, right. Well, there you go. Um, they did. But is yeah. that because they've got billionaires backing them? Isn't it all just yeah, it's absolutely you know, money? Yeah. Oh yes, uh, thirty. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I think it's owned by the Prince of uh, Prince of Dubai or UAE. That the whole team is uh, that's UAE. Yeah. That's that's owned by it. I'm not sure on the on the specifics, but they have a massive backing of uh, cash influx coming in. But I think one of the main reasons they do win is money, but also um, their manager Pep Guardiola. I think he's one of the best out there, one of the best managers by far. Yeah, well, the best manager that dirty oil money can buy. Yes. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, do you follow soccer at all? Uh, well, no, I only follow women's soccer. Um, oh, I've, I've wow. heard about men's soccer, but uh, I've never really watched it. But uh, yeah. the women's soccer, I mean, that's where... Because the thing is, it's enjoy I, I actually think, you know, men's soccer could learn a, a thing or two from the women's game because, you know, it's far more successful... Um, well, especially in this country, and yeah. and the Socceroos are sort of unwatchable because you sort of know they're always going to lose. With the Matildas, like they're one of the best teams in the world, yeah. it's like a fair contest. And uh, I, I was at the semi final on um, when <clears throat> we lost to England, 
Yes. Uh, that was a horrible game. That was just a terrible, like, so to go, oh, my God. It was the Because just the moment they kicked off, it was just tense. And then it just got worse and worse and worse. And it was about a six-minute period when um, Sam Kerr got that amazing goal and it equalised where it felt possible that we might win. But other yeah. than that, it was just it was just a horrible game. Did you watch it? I did. I did, absolutely. And I think England uh, held the position really well. Um, but that, I, if... People You're not were... allowed to say that in this country. Get out. Get out. No. <laughs> England never do anything right. They cheated. That, that Even though they had full possession of the ball for about 79% of the time, it was cheating. Right. Yeah. But I think if, if people who follow, people who follow uh, soccer know how hard the goal was that Sam Carr scored. It was really hard. It's really tough. Like a couple of inches oh. up, that would have been a miss. So it was, it was pitch, pinch perfect. Inch perfect. Right. Yeah. I mean, it was because we were down that end. Like we, we saw the goal right. properly and it was, but it, it was sort of superhuman. It, it, was, it was like. It was, yes. Yeah. And she took a yeah. chance. It, it was a goal. But let me ask you this. How how big do you think soccer is in Australia? Because I was, I, was, uh, I was watching the vibe around me. I said, I've never heard any of my friends, Australian friends, talk about soccer before this specific match and when the Matildas actually went to um, semifinals. So this is the weird thing. Like, as a, I think the problem is that soccer has been primarily promoted amongst men, right, and boys, right. So all my kids who are boys, they all played soccer for the first four or five years of their, you know, in winter, and and so did I. Like, like I, I loved soccer, but I was never very good at it. The like I was always in the D's. Yeah. Right. You know, we all, so I, I, I imagine like, I would say 90% of boys in Australia probably grew up, you know, playing soccer for at least a few years but and yeah. then, but there's no, never any follow through because Australia at a men's level internationally is so shit that there's nowhere to go. Like, and you know, we've had people sort of go off overseas, but there's no, it, whereas I think there's a real possibility that we become more of a soccer nation now that it's being driven by the women because actually there is, there's a whole sort of ladder there, which you can climb that makes it sort of possible. So I, 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 I think it's, you're wrong to say, like, it's wrong to think that Australia is not really a soccer nation. Like I think every soccer, but, or it's every man plays soccer. Now that every woman's playing soccer, it'll actually, sort of start infecting the culture in in the same way that I think AFL in Melbourne has a real cross-gender appeal that right. actually makes it a proper sport, sport whereas, yeah. say, rugby league has never had that cultural impact in Australia because it's just, I mean, you know, both codes are full of rapists, but <laughs> only the men follow the rapists in the rugby league, whereas both the men and the women sort of, follow the rapists in the <laughs> AFL. Do, do you have a favourite uh, political scandal? Wow. That's a good question. Oh, that is a good question. Um, <laughs> there's so many to choose from, especially living in New South Wales. This is the problem. You've got... Actually, I tell you, it's not the biggest. In fact, it's one of the smallest uh, scandals uh, that the previous New South Wales government was in which actually my sister was in the cabinet of then like literally half the cabinet this is honestly true half the cabinet that she was in she was education minister but the rest of the, half of them went to jail <laughs> like in the, in the years after they lost power but um probably my favorite one was there was this character called Eddie Obeid who is currently in jail and he he had lots of schemes. So one of them was he he convinced um, another minister to to give him a a coal mine because they they called it a a training mine or something, and and so he got it at a discount because it was going to train up coal miners because you know you need to do a lot of you need a whole coal mine to train new miners or whatever, and then and then they just on sold it for some huge amount of money. 
um, to to a private uh, to Whitehaven collar thing. Um, but uh, no, my favourite one is so so he he had sort of some good schemes that that peeled off quite a lot of money. But there, <laughs> there's one where he was maritime minister, uh, which looks after all the ports and stuff like that. And he um, and this one's never really been investigated because it's such a small crime in a way. Uh, there's Sydney fish markets, right? Always look run down, like all throughout. They're, they're right near my house and um, always terribly smelly and just terrible. You know, the car park is basically dirt and, you know, uneven bitumen and stuff like that. So he gave them $30 million to do up the fish markets, right? It was going to be a huge renovation. It's like, oh, this is great. And they got the $30 million and, you know, you know, a couple of years passed and they painted it and that was it. And it, like literally, and the, the, the car park is still uneven bitumen. Like <laughs> nothing happened to that fish market except they gave it a coat of paint and it cost $30 million. It was like, that is the biggest scandal. Like this is the biggest like non-scandal scandal ever. Like that is brilliant. You just get thirty million dollars and buy a bucket of paint. So I, I think that's that that's you know like of all the sort of obscure scandals, yeah. that one sticks out to me. The gall of it. It's so blatant. Right. Um, because because of course Eddie Obeid's sons were also um. None of them are in jail. Like, I think they always were able to sort of pin down Eddie Obeid, but, you know, the sons were sort of seen as businessmen. But one of the scandals that they got into just with the local council here, the city, city of Sydney council, is they, they, they sold the council on the idea that they should install smart lights. So instead of, you know, all the lights being dumb, and you know you have to, I don't know. Turn them on. Yeah. <laughs> turn them on. Yeah. Um, but somehow these smart lights would sort of be all smart about it, and presumably I think like they would automatically turn on and off at night, and right. I think they had like cameras and you know sound systems attached to them or something like that. And um, and so they got like six million dollars from the council to install smart lights, and then they didn't. But they, they just. <laughs> They weren't, they just didn't. And then, and then the city of Sydney had to sue them for the $6 million because they did. And he's going, it's like, it's so refreshing to just have, I don't know, to just, to just take the money and then not do anything. Like everyone else, you know, Bernie Madoff's and the, and even like the Scott Morris, the PWCs and everything like that, they're all very elaborate and they involve quite a lot of work. Yeah. Whereas, you know the the really good criminals are the ones who just go, "Oh, yeah, I'll do the money." <laughs> what do you mean? I've got to do something for it. <laughs> and it's like step one: take the money. Boom, that's it. Grift over. I can't believe there are even mediocre at crime. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, that's right. <laughs> oh dear. Can you just imagine. Um, all of a sudden, your colleagues start going to jail just in any other profession. How strange that would be. Yes. Um, <laughs> I mean, unless, unless you're in the profession of being a professional jail guard, in which yeah. case um, yeah. Yeah. you would go to jail every day. Yeah, that's, 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 that's a joke. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think, I think one of the strange things that you really realise about mm. Australian corporate life is that our, I mean, because I've, I've been in business for 20 years in, in that I've had to sort of run companies as part of sort of various creative tasks. And you, you very quickly, as soon as you start interacting with anyone who's dodgy, like you come across people who are just sort of essentially corporate criminals and they try and rip you off and sometimes they succeed, sometimes you don't. And you learn along the way about how to sort of manage those risks. But what you very quickly realise is that Australia is essentially lawless when it comes to corporate crime. That, you know, if you can have a criminal conspiracy that involves three people and 
a company, then you can you, you can basically get away with anything. And ASIC will never, especially if you, you know, keep it to like in the millions of dollars rather than tens or hundreds of millions of dollars, you can you can construct narratives around what you're doing doing with a company. That means yeah, you can just literally do anything because the way company law works is if you are a director of a company and you've got another direct, even if your board say six people or eight people or something like that, if two company directors say anything about the direction or what a company should do, then that's legal, right? Like unless you've set up very clear guidelines about the restrictions on what your directors are, um, Essentially, the way it's sort of like everyone's their own king within a company structure, and and can act autonomously, right? And um, and the, and then so if you have three people, what you do is you have two people on the board making all the criminal decisions, like to defraud the company or whatever, and they're all legal decisions, so courts are not going to unwind them. And then what you do is you have a third person who's the clean skin, right? So you start, you fleece the company, you send all the money to some other entity, and then that you crash the company which you've stolen all the money from. And then you, your third person who's the clean skin, who's never had any th official role with that company, comes in and says, well, actually, um, I'll take over this company that's just been crashed because I don't know who these other directors are. I'm just, uh, I'm just this thing. And oh, look, there's a whole lot of debts that have been incurred by this company that these two directors ran up. Oh, you know, and I, you know, all the money is owed to me. And so you can literally Phoenix, you can actually with three people, you can basically get away with anything in corporate Australia. So, and I've, I've seen it over and over again. Like it's just, it, it's like the wild west. And and other countries aren't like that. Like we sort of have ourselves this vision of ourselves that we're a sort of very law abiding nation. And I think that's true of sort of those blue collar crimes, like, you know, stealing from Coles and Woolworths or doing ice, you know, and attacking your wife or whatever. But, um, or actually maybe attacking your wife is probably a crime you can mainly get away with nowadays, but in Australia, but, but in terms of actual sort of white collar crime, we are, we're like, you know, I don't know, some sort of terribly corrupt third world nation, <laughs> uh, like, like any other sort of terribly corrupt third world nation. We're basically the, the Argentina of the South. Oh, well, no, Argentina is in the South. We're the, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I'm just trying to think of it. <laughs> yeah. do, do you think Australians are just so ignorant to what's going on that, they're just allowed to get away with it. There's, how do we fix it? Yeah, I mean, I, I, look, for all the faults of the mediocrity of the current sort of federal government, the one thing that they are actually doing quite well is they're, they're doing a lot of low-level policy work around fixing, like tightening corporate regulations and things like that. But I think part of the problem is the the story that we tell ourselves is is part of the problem and i and i think a huge part of that is that we have this terrible sort of corporate media that's owned essentially i mean murdoch is sort of on his way out and i think yesterday's story but nine entertainment is now now owns the herald and the age and all those newspapers they own all the talkback radio stations they own Stan and, of course, the Nine Network and 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 they're the top rating television network. There's a real concentration of of you know our own self image tied up in um, in essentially people who have come up through these corporate systems, saying you know the head of Channel Nine is, is a corporate crook, but you know, absolutely the people on the board, you know, like, like it's all a very cozy club of essentially people who've risen to the top through a lack of rules and a lack of accountability. So 
they're not going to turn around and go, you know what we need? We need to start telling stories about, you know, <laughs> white collar crime in Australia. Like instead they'll commission, you know, series number a hundred of, oh, look, here's a street crime drama set in King's Cross about, you know, you know, somebody dealing drugs out of a prostitute stripping club or whatever, you know, like it's sort of, you know, we, we sort of tell ourselves the wrong story, which I think means that, yeah, there's no urgency at a government level to go, yeah, let's really overhaul this. And, and, um, and, 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 and I think also the other thing is you would get immediate pushback from the coalition on any uh, things like that, because tightening the laws around white collar crime is, um, you know, like is seen as, oh, we're tying small business up in red tape or whatever. And that, and that, what that's actually code for is code for, well, hang on, you know, like, like I would say, you know, you know, half the small business owners in Australia are in some way dodgy and getting away with, you know, white collar crime. So of course, everyone's got an interest in, it's very sort of, it's like, um, it is very like Argentina where, because everyone's got, you know, and actually Greece had this problem about 10 years ago where, because everyone had their own grift within the system that it becomes very hard to change without a crisis. And the thing is, because we're a lucky country, we keep getting bailed out by the fucking sackfuls of coal that we shovel off to China every day. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, how would you change it? I don't know. What What you really want is you want a minority government where... Um, you know, the balance of power is held by people who are not in the Liberal or the Labor Party, who, you know, Teal's Green sort of coalition. Because I'll tell you, I mean, growing up in New South Wales, this has got very serious all of a sudden, but growing up in New South Wales, there was there was this brief moment uh, in the early 1990s when we, for about four years, had a minority government. The, the Liberal Party didn't quite get into power in the second uh, in their second term. And so there were these five independents who held the balance of power and they, they're the people who set up ICAC. They set up all these anti-corruption things, which today, you know, still sort of control New South Wales politics because, you know, there's people with bumper stickers. I don't know whether this is true in Victoria as well, but you know, you, every second car has a bumper sticker on it saying, I love ICAC. That doesn't happen anywhere else in the world where, you know, the anti-corruption commission is sort of, it's analogous to your favourite football team. Like, go, ICAC, go, ICAC, let's catch some of the criminals. Right. Since we're talking about criminals and jail, and I read this on the yeah. I could be wrong. I've, I read that you were arrested for sitting naked on Keanu Reeves' bike. Is that true? That is a total made-up feature. I noticed that the other day. My son was googling me, and <laughs> and he said, "Oh, did you did you get arrested doing the Matrix stunt?" And I was like, "That never happened." But I've got there's because my my middle name is also not Danger, by the way. Even though Wikipedia claims, <laughs> I was gonna say it's um, like, that's such a cool middle name, Danger. I know, I know. Oh, yeah, because my my sons keep on saying, you know, like. Dad, you know, you should edit that one out. And I was like, no, I'm not going to. Danger is my middle name, son. Um, no, so I never, never, never did the Keanu Reeves. No, the first time I was arrested was actually a bit earlier than the Matrix films. was um, when we were, it was with Craig Rucastle, actually, and he didn't get arrested. We were protesting against upfront fees for university students because back um, in the, 1990s you, you you didn't pay to go to university like there was no such things upfront fees they were seen as this outrageous um you know equity issue if you were going to charge people upfront fees to go to university anyway um so uh so we they were having a senate meeting to decide this issue and we were protesting there were student protesters standing outside the building and and we started banging on the windows and everything like that. And then we started trying to open the window and it cracked. And this beautiful stained glass window just broke. And I think I'm pretty sure it was Craig who actually broke it, right? 
<laughs> and he just sort of steps away. I hand my mobile phone. I had a really big, large, chunky analog mobile phone. I handed it to Craig and I said, I'm going in. <laughs> and then and so in my mind, the whole idea was I would enter into this meeting and go, no upfront fees. And then it'll go, oh, yes, we agree. No upfront fees. And, you know, utopia would be restored in Australia. But instead, what happened was I the, the police were waiting on the other side of the window and they just immediately got me in the most extraordinary arm lock. Like, just like the, my arm was like up, touching my fucking back of my head. Like, it was so fucking twisted that I just went into absolute paroxysms of agony. And all I said was, I'll go peacefully. I'll go peacefully. <laughs> That's all I got out. And then I just got bundled off. Humiliating, <laughs> but we did actually save up front fees. So, uh, so they didn't implement them that year. Um, they then they waited until after we'd left uni before uh, they did that. So, yeah. So you had a major role in uh, in that in the, the oh yeah major major role. It was they they stopped. It, it wasn't anything to do with anything <laughs> else. It was just that uh, I'll go say I'll go peacefully. That's <laughs> up front piece so you guys were being arrested even back then yeah well yeah because um i don't know because uni was fun back in those days because because you didn't have the pressure of upfront fees and stuff like that there really was you know i i would i survived uni by doing jobs during the holidays. So I would, I'd get into massive debt, like $250 of debt I'd get into during term and, and, you know, like, you know, make sure I ate $2 hamburgers for dinner, you know, um, as term came to an end. And then I would save up all my money by, um, doing phone polling and stuff like that, but, but not during term. So during term, like during the actual semester, you're free to sort of just actually enjoy university life it was just fantastic so yeah we we organized a dope smoke in that year as well which was like a to legalize marijuana which is now legal so the, i mean i'll claim that one as well um sure it's 20 years later that it happened but uh, i'm pretty sure they were looking back at the dope smoking but the funny thing about that uh protest was we we forgot to arrange any dope to smoke at the dope smoking. So the night before we're going, oh, fuck, we've got to get some dope. And, um, and we needed quite a lot. We needed like bush part or something like that. Cause we were going to pass around, you know, we wanted, and we realized actually hundreds and hundreds of people, probably thousands of people are going to turn up. Cause it was, it was, um, it was in, I think it was set in September. So it was a beautiful day. It was outside the front of the main quad. So there's these beautiful lawns. We packed out the lawns, right? So it would have been a few thousand people. We had all these high profile speakers um, and a band. I think we even had a band. And then, and so, and we were no fucking dope, right? And um, so I remember like at the last minute, we made this huge trek. We had to drive up, I think, to the it was like the northern beaches, like it was an hour long drive to finally find this person who had enough dope. Um, and I, th I think I put it on my credit card or something like that. Anyway, um, got back and then we were rolling, you know, joints all night. And then we realized we just fucking don't have enough. Don't, like we need, you know, we like for the cameras, we need like tons and tons of dope. So we, we went, went out and bought a whole lot of, parsley and we chopped that up and made out tons of uh, parsley things and then we made sure that like all our friends got the actual real proper joints but half the crowd were there going oh this is so great <laughs> getting high on parsley there you go hold on what kind of drug dealer takes credit card no no like i think what i did is i got a cash advance on my credit yeah. card uh so then we, it was, I mean, it was a lot of money back then. Like I got people to sort of put in 20 bucks each or whatever. Uh, and it was the biggest drug deal I'd ever done. It was like 400 bucks or something to get, um, I don't know what it would have been an ounce. Uh, I don't know. I can't even remember. That's not enough for thousand. Yeah. With that. 
<laughs> yeah, not... no, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> so we just tanned it out. Then what we did is we bought a whole lot of parsley from the local grocer right near my house, which we I later found out, which always had terrible produce. Like it was just like the worst grocer in the world. It was like a fruit store. And I later found out that actually it was not really a grocery store. It was actually a front for a heroin dealership. This is back in the 1990s when, wow. um, so I probably could have just asked them for marijuana at that store. It would have been much, so I wouldn't have to travel halfway across the city just to get, the thing, but but the thing is, the par the parsley we bought was really green. I remember it being very green and very sort of wet, basically, and and so we had to put it in the oven to to dry it out. So if you're ever trying to defraud dope protesters, um, there's quite a lot of you know you you got to put a lot of thought into into how to, um, you know, like. Pass parsley yeah. off as uh, as dope. Mind you, it was all free. Like we were handing them out for free, so I sort of don't feel too bad that you know half the people didn't actually get real stuff. Did actually someone smoke yeah. a parsley joint? Yeah, yeah. Oh no, tons of people did. Yeah, <laughs> and no one. I mean, like maybe one or two people noticed, but but the real stoners all brought their own dope anyway. So they didn't notice. So it was the it was sort of the people who were trying it for the first time, you know, science nerds and things like that. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I think I think they it was, you know, it shows the power of the mind to to get you stoned even when you're making <laughs> parsley. Or maybe actually, p parsley does have psychotropic uh, things, and we discovered it that day. Yeah, it does. Yeah. You know. Let me let me ask you this, and it may be a bit serious question. Working working off of the presumption of the tall poppy syndrome in Australia, um, mm. you were a bit rebellious back in your uni days. What influenced you back then? I think um, I grew up being taught that I was a very privileged person. Right? Both my parents were. Well, my dad was an academic, my mum, all through my sort of um, childhood was doing her PhD and, you know, and, you know, we were brought up with really good educations and, um, you know, and we were basically taught, look, you're white and you're privileged in this world. Um, it is your responsibility, therefore, to actually make the world a better place than you know like given that you have all these privileges your job is to then you know serve society to the best of your ability sort of thing so which is a very i think problem i think there's a real touching good you know idea stuck there but i think it's also a highly problematic idea because you're telling it's a very noblesse oblige sort of ruling class attitude. Like, oh, you own this place. You've got to go and, you know, run it, <laughs> essentially. So, um, so, but, but I think back then I drank that Kool-Aid. And so, you know, I turned up at uni. I think I, I look back now and I go, oh, actually, I had a whole lot of problems, um, you know, concentrating and stuff like that. Like I, I, there was a whole lot of stuff going on for me that I wasn't aware of at all, but I, I knew I, I loved creativity. I turned up going, I really want to run the, the university newspaper. I want to actually, you know, as far as possible, replicate that sort of, I idealized 1960s, 1970s style university thing of just going out and, and just, really fucking you know owning the campus and and having fun with it and stuff like that and it, it was very lucky like at the time Sydney University like their newspaper was incredibly boring and very serious and very journalistic and stuff like that and uh, at school I'd been working with actually Dom Knight who's still my co-host and um and Chesley Chidello who and we had taken over our school newspaper and turned it into basically a funny satirical magazine. And as a result, had 
transformed that magazine. Like it was literally, it became this thing of every time the new edition came out, which was about once a term, we'd sell it for, we'd get all these little helpers to sell it for 20 cents at the gate. And we, you know, essentially a hundred percent of people would buy copies because it was funny and it was, it, it was irreverent and it mocked teachers and all that sort of stuff. So we'd sort of done that and came to uni and it was very easy to just go, okay, I want to do that. And so in second year, we'd taken over the the newspaper. I, in first year, I had set up this page because, you know, the editors were really boring, but they were looking, always looking for content. And so I'd said, I'll do a page every week in your newspaper and I'll, we'll call it, you know, Onisoir News World and it'll be satirical news. And so it was very easy to sort of go, this is, you know, we're going to make the whole newspaper funny, like just like this page of News World. So we completely won those elections. And then once you've, once you own the means of, you know, information distribution, um, the world is yours. Like we were able to organise dope smokings. We we would organise things like so. We had Trotskyists on campus who were sort of like extremist left wing political operators. Um, and they would have these earnest, the Spartacists, that's right. These sort of weird, uh, very fringe left-wing groups. And we would, um, and so we once organized a counter rally to this Spartacist rally, um, knowing that they'd only have like 10 people turn up. So we organized a, a similar rally called the fashionable day of action, um, <laughs> in the same location as the Spartacus and like hundreds of people turned up to our fashionable day of action because we'd advertised it in the student newspaper. Right? And it was all, it was so much fun. And then we went around and we went through, like we went on a rally march through, it was a satirical rally through all the lecture halls and all the bars and kept picking people up along the way. And our yeah. demands were, what do we want? Gradual change. When do we want it? In due course. And it was all about, you know, <laughs> And that's right. And it was, it was because we had corruptly published, like we'd, we would have this color center spread in the newspaper each week and we'd corruptly published the campaign poster of one of the editors who was running for union, um, as the main sort of center spread, right? Like it was just totally outrageous rorts. And so that was the point of the rally was it was to support outrageous rorts. Um, and then we got hundreds of people along to this rally. So, yeah, it was just, it was, we just had so much fun. Um, and I think, I don't know, like I'm always hesitant to say, of, you know, I don't know what's happening at uni nowadays. You know, like I, I always hated it when people from the sixties would say, oh, well, you aren't fun in the nineties. Cause we were having great fun back then, but I do get the sense that, the sort of intensification of labor and the increase of hex and all that sort of stuff on the system has meant that there is not this sort of vibrant cultural life that, um, that, that we had back then. And, and it spawned not just things like the chaser, cause we were all doing, we set up the arts review and we did weekly theater sports in the bar and we had five minute noodles, which was our stand up competition. We had all these sort of cultural Sort of things, but it spawned like the like half the sort of um entertainment industry went through that period. Like there, there are just so many really great entertainers who came from that generation. Um, and I, you know, like I, I, I don't see. Well, I mean, no, you do get waves. Actually, I'm maybe I'm wrong, but um, yeah, it was just a wonderful time. It's funny how if you control quote-unquote media you can control the crowd as well yes <laughs> i only just had that insight now telling it it's going oh, fuck. Actually, I, should, I should control the media That's what I should do. <laughs> you get, but it gives you it does give you an insight into why the yes. stokes and the murdochs you know sort of you know, they're, they're basically, I mean, Kerry Stokes is basically a, a mining equipment billionaire. Like the seven group is, is a mining group, um, which owns sort of gas and, and mining interests and it owns Caterpillar trucks. And it's got this, 
and he's just bought the media as a sort of side hustle because it's really fun and he can control what people think and he can be just the most racist network in Australia and and make sure you don't get a mining tax it's perfect <laughs> what what are your thoughts on politics in the US I was going to say outside Australia but well let's face it like most of the mm. things are influenced by America so let's let's talk about that a little bit what are your thoughts on American politics? Well, I think, um, I mean, first of all, incredibly funny and um, you know, <laughs> definitely, definitely worth watching. Um, I mean, it, it's sort of sad, though, really, because, you know, you can see them slipping into authoritarian, like it, it is, you know, the, the project, like it, it, it the the project to create an authoritarian state takes decades, right? And, you know, and everyone knows the theory, you chip away at the independence of the judiciary, you know, and that, that'll take five, 10 years. Then you chip away at the independence of the civil service and, you know, that can happen concurrently, but all those things are happening. And, you know, it, it doesn't matter how many Democrats get in and sort of stop the stop it for, or freeze it in place for four years there's a genuine sort of authoritarian agenda going on that means all they're doing is sort of freezing it in place they're not then reinventing democracy and refreshing democracy they're just they're too old they're like joe biden's you know hey. he bothered conceptualizing <laughs> how to you know refresh american democracy so the the slide is i would say inevitable right like it's it's going to turn and and i think you see that like um nick bryant uh is that bbc journalist he's written several great books on the decline of america um uh and and he now is based in australia um uh, you know after living in britain for sorry living in america being the bbc correspondent um for america for at least the last 10 years and i was talking to him i think for this po for my podcast and he was saying yeah the reason why i left america is because i've got young kids and um and we don't want them to be shut up in schools and and the thing is what is fascinating they live in they lived in brooklyn and his wife was saying that the way they do shooter drills in Brooklyn and you're going, Brooklyn's not going to have fucking mass shootings. Like that's not the deep South. Like that's not, you know, you wouldn't think that would be a problem, but the fear is so widespread and guns are so easily available that, that, you know, you have to do them everywhere. And the way they do it is it starts at the age of five or even preschool. Um, and they don't go immediately now. So what if, you know, if a school shooter comes in, this is what you do. It's all age appropriate training. So it starts off going, okay, we're in Brooklyn. Imagine if say a hurricane came to this school, what would we do? Okay. So what would happen is, you know, the, an alarm will sound. And at that point you've got to get on, you know, close the door, lock the door and get under the desk. Right. That's the hurricane alert, right? And then by about the age of six or seven, they start introducing the idea of, well, it could be a hurricane or it could be maybe a baddie with a gun, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, same sound and same alarm. And you realise, oh, they just sort of gradually introduce the idea. But it becomes a very vivid thing for your kids. And and then so I was talking to the, Nick's wife and saying, so but Brooklyn's not going to be, you know, shot up. And she went, well, actually... The thing that clinched it was they looked up their borough, like so, you know, there's five boroughs in uh and Brooklyn's one of them in, in New York. And there had been twenty-three mass shootings in the past year in Brooklyn, in their borough. And so um like and of course they weren't reported because they were mass shootings, they went mass killings, right? So there's a difference between but, um, and, and, you know, when you go to America, it's extraordinary. I went to America, uh, uh back in, actually it was back in 2016 and, and, uh, I went to this small town in North Carolina and 
I, I was having beers with the local sort of television reporter and his crew, and people kept on coming up saying, "Oh, did you did you cover the murder suicide last night? It was a couple of blocks over." And I went, "Oh yeah, yeah, we heard about it, but we didn't bother covering it. But we went out there, but but only two people had died, so it wasn't really enough to make the local news." And and it was so dramatic, like it was like this neighbour had been getting frustrated at the other neighbour and then they'd started having a gun shootout between the two. One of them was really drunk or something. And and you're going, that would be total, like that's Channel 7 top yeah. story um, yeah. in Australia. But actually it's so commonplace that even in the local town news, nah, yeah. nah, too common. So, so Brooklyn had 23 mass shootings in the... Um, in the previous t- 12 months and they went, okay, we're out of here. And I think that that's what you're going to see. You're going to see this gradual, just, you know, the people who can get out and the diaspora is going to shrink with America and it's going to end up being the people who either have to be there or, you know, actually quite like a bit of authoritarianism, you know, in their, in their life. And, um, and, you know, that's, I mean, it's, Civil War style politics, so it's uh, yeah, it's terribly worrying. But I think it's also where capitalism has got itself right, which is it doesn't need democracy anymore. Like it, it had a really good alliance with democracy for about fifty years, and actually, the the experience, the life experience of somebody who's now in the billionaire class is so, and their risk profile is so different to other human beings. They're so much more powerful than, than citizens that actually d- democracy just gets in the way of their, their lifestyles and their way of accumulating. And, and they can buy off the political system so easily that democracy is just, is a, is a sort of pointless like it was a nice fig leaf for a while to sort of pretend that we're all equal, but actually we're now at the point where, well, we don't really need to pretend anymore. Well, thank you for depressing us. Um, much appreciated. <laughs> <laughs> well, were you expecting more funny? I, I should have been more funny. I just, I, but you've asked such fascinating questions. Like, we'll, we'll, we'll wrap up in a second, but to end with something, I guess, a bit wider. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. And people from wanting to kill themselves. Uh, yeah. What, what is Wankonomics? Oh, right. Okay. Well, <laughs> Wankonomics. So we did this show at the beginning of the year called Wankonomics, and it's it's a way to solutionize uh, the modern world. So it's taking the piss out of, you know, that sort of freak economics, um, MBA style, how to be successful at work style thing. But what really worked for the show was it was sort of essentially, it was like a mini MBA training you in how to be more annoying at work. So you, you use all the buzzwords and keywords and it teaches you how to be passive aggressive in emails and um, how do you, how to say, Oh, I'm touching base. Let's circle back. Like use all the language and stuff like that and how to talk to colleagues at work. We had a whole training session on, you know, if you're in the kitchen and somebody's having a leftover curry, you know, you have to say, oh, well, it always tastes better the day after, you know, regardless of whether it does or not, you just have to say that. Like, so, uh, and, and what was great about the show. And then we also sort of did how to then climb the corporate ladder. So how to milk the government here in Sydney, we had this, um, government tended to put a flag in the indigenous flag on the Sydney Harbour Bridge. And it was going to cost $25 million. So we ran through how to, how to milk the government and, um, and become a sort of PwC style consultant by, by ripping off the tax base. So it was a really, it was a nice show, but what was great about it was the audiences loved it because you could just see them in pain. Uh, like, because everyone does those things work. Everyone um it was a very you know like people felt really connected to the material because we were sort of essentially holding up a mirror to all the wanky <laughs> things that you sort of do to to get by at work and i think yeah it was it was really nice and so what we've actually decided to do is we're going to um just 
coast along. So it's me and James Schleffel who does the shovel. Um, we do live shows every year, but we've decided next year we're going to double down and just circle back um, <laughs> and and do another version of Wankonomics. Wankonomics 2.0. Pro touch base, touch base with everyone and yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it, it's just so rich. It's such a beautiful area. I can't believe, yeah, it's sort of observational politics about office life. Yeah, it's lovely. I love that. It it touches, um, it really hits close to home. Because <laughs> I use, <laughs> yeah, the amount of times I use yeah, touch yeah. base or circling back or just following up or thanks in advance, I use that every oh. single <laughs> and thanks in advance is such an asshole thing to say because yeah. it's like I'm asking you something that you don't want to do. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Wankonomics. <laughs> How did you come up with that name? I thought Wankonomics was statistics on people who jerked off. How many times they did? So sounds like that. How did you come Wankonomics. up with Wankonomics? Wankonomics. Yeah. That's on how many times? We... Well, and luckily, James used to work in the corporate world as a branding expert. So he, he, um, he's very good at the, at the brands. And I think we were originally going to call it something like solutionizing the corporate world or something like that. Or actually the original name was going to be 60 minute MBA. And we thought, well, that sounds really boring. Sounds <laughs> like a terrible, but Wanganomics is good because it's sort of, that's what it is. It's but it, it, we all do that. We all need to become a wanker. Yeah. Should, yeah. should we bother um, plugging your shows that you have at the end of the year, or are they all? Yes, sold? definitely. Yes, War <laughs> on Twenty Twenty Three. It's um, it's it's me, James Schleffel from the Shovel. It's Gabby Bolt, who is this up and coming musical comedian. She won Best Newcomer uh, at the Sydney Comedy Festival. She won a moosehead at Melbourne Comedy Festival and she was best of the week at Adelaide Fringe, I think at the beginning of this year. Um, and and then Mark Humphreys, who has just been recently punted from 730. Uh and and so if you if you want to see Mark Humphreys, you have to buy tickets to our show. Yes. So you go war on 2023.com. And we're actually turning it into an annual comedy gala. We've been doing it for about seven years. We've decided it's we're upgrading it to be an annual comedy gala. We're all going to be dressed in black tie. We'll bought tuxedos. And we're encouraging the audience to also turn up as a black tie event. We're going to have a red carpet. And <laughs> and we can't promise that there won't be paparazzi there. Uh, so, you know, if you're a little camera shy watch out because you will have to walk along the red carpet to get into the show. I love that. Well, I checked Melbourne yeah. not that long ago for tickets and they're all sold out. So I would absolutely. <laughs> it's so annoying. But anyway, um, do you have any more questions? No, I'm good, man. I'll ask one good. more question. Please. What is your hope for Australian politics going forward? So, um, yeah, fuck. <laughs> I just want Albert to grow a pair. I just think, and I know that that's, I mean, it's false. Like I'm allowed to say something that's hopeful, but would never happen. But wouldn't it be lovely if he started actually dreaming the big dreams that he presumably had 20 years ago when he was working his way up from living in social housing? Like even just going... I mean, I, I actually think, you know, actually my one hope is that they actually fucking fix the home crisis, the home ownership crisis and the home affordability crisis because that is fundamental to all politics. Like you cannot organise a political movement if actually half your money is going to pay the next week's rent and you're worried about that you, that is no basis for a democracy because everyone's just scurrying around you know blaming themselves for a problem that is entirely systemic like it's but you feel so shit when you can't afford your rent because and you blame it you think oh if only i earn more and it's like no everyone's in the same fucking boat but it but it's such an inhibitor to then feeling hopeful about in 
anything else and dreaming the democratic so i think i think that's the key and i think out there and and start actually pressuring the government to the point where um you know there can be and just and doing things like having rental strikes like people are saying oh we need a rent freeze and things like that well another way to organize that is to just fucking stop paying the fucking rent until the rules are rewritten and and also and and you know a home is not a fucking widget you shouldn't be allowed to be chucked out of home like you know in other countries if you sign a lease that's it that they can't chuck you out it doesn't matter whether they sell the property or do anything like that it's a fucking home yeah. you know and you're allowed to fucking nail things to the wall and renovate it how you fucking wish because it's your fucking home it doesn't matter who owns it it's yeah. your home yeah. so yeah that's the, the thing very fast turnaround in which a landlord can just kick you out but you have to give more notice to them to if you want to leave is just yes ridiculous. yes and and that's not the case in other parts of the world like people are surprised when they find out that the whole of spanish politics was completely overturned when the spanish government tried in barcelona um they tried to make it so that they have one-way leases in in Barcelona where if you rent a house, you've got it for the next five years guaranteed, no matter what happens. Um, but you can move out at any time, but the landlord can't chuck you out at any time, right? Simple law. And the Spanish government tried to reduce it to three years, right, um, of these one-way leases where after three years, the landlord could chuck you out. And the whole fucking city just exploded. It was like, that's outrageous. And here, people on, are on six-month by six-month thing. And then if, oh, if they sell it, oh, no, you can be chucked out within 30. Like, it's just outrageous. Mm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's that's my hope. <laughs> Revolution. Well, <laughs> I look forward to listening to you um, and Dom tomorrow morning. <laughs> so. Yes. So we'll, um, we'll, we'll cover this podcast. We're, we've yet to record tomorrow. Oh, really? Episode. We get up to record it. So, um, yeah, it'll be nice and topical. It'll be all about how shit your podcast is. No, no, it won't. <laughs> <laughs> Look forward to it. Uh, thank you so much. Yeah. For this. We're definitely going to have to have you on again at some stage to see how far Australia's come takes... since this podcast. <laughs> Yes, yes. Well, what we'll do, why don't we book it in for after the revolution so we can yeah, do absolutely. Yeah, that's good yeah. timing. Yeah. We'll, we'll definitely follow yeah. up. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Exactly. Yeah, maybe a week or two, probably. <laughs> Give me a bit of time. Yeah. That's on our radar, though. So, yeah, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Enjoy the rest of your <laughs> yeah, <that's... laughs> right, Thank you. Right. Okay. Bye. See ya.